Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome to the latest edition of Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Practice Group at Kelly Dry. As listeners know, it is a goal of our podcast to cover the emerging trends and issues that will affect businesses and the law of communications. As our full spectrum name suggests, we try to venture outside of the traditional regulatory areas, outside of pure FCC regulation, and cover the full spectrum of matters that are relevant to the communications industry. And today we have just such a topic for you. Today, we're going to talk about the rights and responsibilities of communication service providers when their customers enter into bankruptcy protection. To do that, I'm joined today by two of my colleagues from Kelly Dry's Bankruptcy Practice Group, Jason Adams, a partner in our practice group, and Megan McLaughlin, a senior associate. Jason and Megan, welcome. Thanks, Steve. We're happy to have both of you here. We're going we're gonna to do this podcast this way. First, we're going to go through an overview of some bankruptcy topics and, and issues. And then we're going to finish by talking about the FCC's Keep Americans Connected pledge and some of the interesting bankruptcy aspects that come up from that. So um, look forward to that as we move forward. But I'm going to start now with some of the basics, some of the context. As my uh, introduction alluded to, As we're recording this, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 related shutdowns. Um, It's been a very disruptive atmosphere, very disruptive to businesses and to our economy. And many, many companies who are customers of communication service providers are hurting right now. Um, This kind of financial distress can lead to a spike in bankruptcy filings and other actions. And I want to turn, Jason, I think to you, are you seeing that kind of situation now, or is that something we would expect to come later in the process here? Yeah, it's something that we're expecting to come. And I think we're starting to see the initial wave hits. Um, It's obviously going to be very industry focused. Um, You know, retail, restaurants, entertainment industry, um, those are the ones that we're going to see the most impact on. Uh, But we're not going to see it immediately. Um, we knew that when, when the original uh, pandemic hit, when, when the shutdowns began, our expectation, which was relatively on point, was that initially you were going to see a slowdown in bankruptcy um, and that existing cases were actually largely going to go on pause as, uh, as, as the industry and as the professionals and the companies assess the situation. Um, one of the topics we'll talk about in a couple of minutes is, is the automatic stay in bankruptcy, which, uh, which prevents uh, companies or, or, or vendors and suppliers from taking action against a company that's in bankruptcy. Well, COVID-19 did that on its own uh, and basically prevented third parties from resorting to the courts, re- resorting to foreclosure action. So, so companies got an automatic stay right away. Um, 
what we then expected was to start to see a small uptick as people understood what was going on in bankruptcy. And we've seen that now this week. We saw J. Crew, uh, the first national retailer, file for bankruptcy. We saw True Religion file a week ago. Uh, Gold's Gym just filed. So we're starting to see um, some of these companies file for bankruptcy. But we really expect that spike to occur later on in the year, um, probably third and fourth quarter, um, when actually companies start to reopen. Um, as I mentioned, there's no reason to really file for bankruptcy right now because nobody can take action against you. Um, it's The bankruptcy really can't accomplish anything right now. Um, it's not a market where you can sell assets in bankruptcy and it's difficult to reorganize largely because um, there's no financing. Um, a lot of traditional lenders uh, aren't going to put money into a retailer that's not generating revenue. Um, there was actually an article um, the other day uh, from CNN uh, with the title of our company's too broke to go bankruptcy. And, and while that oversimplifies uh, the idea, the reality is, is that bankruptcy is an expensive process. Um, it does require financing to get through that process. And banks right now simply aren't willing to lend on that. And so what we expect is when when the economy opens up again, when uh, the stay-home orders are lifted and, and business starts to go back to normal, our expectation is actually that's when you're going to see the wave of bankruptcies hit. Great. Thank you for that. That's helpful. Um, there also, there are two types of bankruptcy filings. Can you give us kind of a high-level overview of the two types and what the differences are? Sure, I can take that. Uh, traditionally, Chapter 7 has been used to liquidate assets, and Chapter 11 is used to reorganize a company. In Chapter 7, there's no ongoing business. A Chapter 7 trustee is appointed, and the trustee works to liquidate and sell all the debtor's assets. In Chapter 11, there's usually an ongoing business, management stays in place, and the company uses the bankruptcy process to emerge as an operating company. More recently, though, we have actually seen Chapter 7 be used by companies to liquidate their assets or sell their assets as a going concern to other third parties. Okay, okay, great. And then um, the other thing, just to kind of set the table here, um, is the 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 priorities that bankruptcy places on repayments. Megan, you talked about selling the assets or reorganizing the going concern, but those pre-petition debts, I understand pre-petition, post-petition are big deals. Um, pre-petition debts, are there priorities for how those are paid? And can you give us a little bit of an idea of what that covers? Yeah, so so priority scheme in bankruptcy is is governed by Section 507 of the Bankruptcy Code, which is a, a very complex uh, uh, provision of the Bankruptcy Code that can really be simplified into five discrete categories. Uh, at the top of the food chain are secured creditors. Um, secured creditors come first and foremost, and they are secured to the extent of their collateral package, um, to the extent that the value of their collateral exceeds their secured claim, then they get that money first. Uh, if the value of the collateral is, is less than the amount of their secured claim, then they're paid up to the value of that collateral. Whatever is left over becomes an unsecured claim, which we'll get to in a second. Second in the pecking order is administrative creditors. Um, that is almost typically or generally 
post-petition goods, services, everything that the company incurs after the bankruptcy files is administrative and comes behind the secured creditors. Um, there's a second category of administrative creditors, which is uh, providers of goods in the 20 days prior to bankruptcy. Uh, they are also entitled to a uh, administrative claim and administrative claims must be paid if a company is going to reorganize in Chapter 11. Uh, third are priority creditors. Uh, those are typically uh, pre-petition employee claims up to a statutory cap of $13,600, as well as governmental tax claims. Fourth in line is unsecured creditors, and that's typically made up of your pre-petition suppliers, your pre-petition vendors, your landlord community, um, everything that has been incurred prior to the bankruptcy, uh, absent security interest uh, or, or similar protections. Those are unsecured creditors, and typically those are not paid in full in bankruptcy. Uh, and last is equity. Um, typically, uh, that is usually canceled uh, in, in bankruptcy and usually doesn't recover anything unless all of the uh, categories above that get paid in full. Okay. And Jason, a communication service provider, that's typically going to be then unsecured debt? Unless they've negotiated uh, protections prior to the bankruptcy that would elevate them above that, that is correct. Uh, service providers uh, and, and telecommunication providers for the services that they provided prior to the bankruptcy would typically be unsecured creditors. Okay. Okay. So let's assume for purposes of this, the communication service providers are unsecured. They're dumped in that category with all other unsecured creditors. Who looks out for their interests in a bankruptcy well, you would hope that the company that, that dragged them into bankruptcy would do so, but that's typically not the case. Um, generally, unsecured creditors are, are on their own uh, to look out for their own interests. Um, but there, there is one uh, group or body that, that kind of takes the lead often in these cases, and that's uh, a committee of unsecured creditors that is formed in, in most Chapter 11 cases. Um, the charge of that committee is to represent the interests of all unsecured creditors as a collective. Um, it's generally formed very early on in the bankruptcy case by the Office of the United States Trustee, which is the government watchdog that monitors bankruptcy. Um, and those committees can be very powerful voices for unsecured creditors. Um, most importantly, they're entitled to retain counsel. Um, and that counsel is paid out of the, uh, the bankruptcy estate from the company itself not out of the pockets of the unsecured creditors. Um, so um, that is generally one of the more powerful voices to advocate uh, for the interests of unsecured creditors. Okay, so if I'm a communication service provider and I have a, a large unsecured debt, I should be looking to that committee and possibly participating in that committee? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, uh, obviously one of the first things that, that any creditor uh, of a bankrupt company needs to do is contact their counsel uh, and start planning about how they're going to uh, deal with the bankruptcy. Um, but certainly those creditors with large unsecured claims should consider participating on a creditor's committee um, because uh, their voice can be heard uh, and their interest can be looked after. Great, great, okay. All right, and we, we referenced a little bit earlier the automatic stay. Can one of you explain to me what is the automatic stay and what does it mean for a communication service provider, for example? Sure, I can do that. 
The first thing to know about the automatic stay is that it's extremely broad. The best tip for every creditor is you should assume it applies to what you want to do. Um, it's in effect immediately upon the petition date and it stops creditors from suing the debtor, stops any collection efforts, stop, you, you can't terminate your contract, you can't enforce a judgment, you can't create or enforce a lien. It, anything you may want to do is effectively stayed. The purpose is to off service, give, for example. You, right. As it relates to a telecommunication service provider or any service provider, you can't cut off service just because a company, your customer, filed for bankruptcy. You also can't try to collect on your pre-petition debts. And the, that's probably the two most important things to keep in mind because that's probably your first instinct when you hear a customer files for bankruptcy. Um, are there any types of actions that aren't covered by the automatic stay then? The short answer is yes, there are, there are some exceptions. Um, bankruptcy is not a free ride for a debtor. They do have to stay current with post-petition payments. If they don't stay current, the any creditor, including a telecommunications service provider, can file a motion to lift the automatic stay to terminate the contract, or there's the option of filing a motion to compel, to um, compel performance, compel payment. Neither of those are um, all that successful. It, they're usually a leverage tactic to get, force the debtor to pay attention. Um, other options, you, you are authorized to file a proof of claim. You can draw on a letter of credit um, and you can enforce rights against the non-debtor. For example, if there's a guarantor as part of your contract, you're, you're still allowed to do that because that company is not protected by the stay. Okay, all right. I want, I want to zero back in on that, I guess. In, in the communications industry, it is, it, it's somewhat common to get a, um, a letter of credit or to have credit terms associated with um, these, uh, the services that are provided. So if I if my my customer goes into bankruptcy, but I have a letter of credit from a bank or from a third party, I can enforce against that. The idea is that the proceeds from a letter of credit are not property of the estate, so they are not protected by the automatic stay. What I would caution anyone to do before. Collecting is contact an attorney first, just to be safe. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Understood. Okay. Well, that, that, I mean, that might be a significant thing. Are there other ways or any other advice you would give to a communication service provider for mitigating their risk of having a very large debt that rolls into bankruptcy as an unsecured claim? Yes, there is. And, and, and it really comes with pre-planning. Um, once the bankruptcy is filed, your recourse for unsecured pre-bankruptcy claims is pretty limited. There's not a lot of actions that you can take other than filing a proof of claim uh, and waiting to see, I guess, first, whether your contract is going to be assumed, uh, because in an assumption scenario where, where the company decides that it's going to emerge from bankruptcy and it wants your underlying contract, it has to cure any unpaid defaults. Uh, or you see what you're going to get under a plan or a sales scenario, 
Um, but that's really the most you can do. It really comes down to pre-planning. Uh, and, and we really kind of focus on a couple of areas. Number one is knowing your customers very well. Um, the greatest source of information that you can get is your relationship uh, with your customers. Uh, and that really comes down to understanding their business, understanding their financial condition, and monitoring their payments. Um, you really need to pay, pay, pay careful attention to when companies start to fall behind uh, or miss payments. Um, that is a, a, a red flag for potential bankruptcy. And if you take action promptly, you can, start, you can stop the accumulation of further uh, debt before bankruptcy happens. Um, it's also about listening to rumors, um, getting uh, information through the press, and reviewing the company's public filings. Um, secondly, it's about protecting yourself and your contracts. Uh, and we already talked about that uh, a moment ago in terms of obtaining an LC, um, getting a security interest, getting guarantee from parent companies uh, or affiliated entities, shortening your payment terms to limit your exposure, uh, and including automatic termination or credit modification terms that are not tied to the financial condition of the company. Um, the more of these types of provisions that you can include in a contract, the better that you can protect yourself in the event that a, 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 a unexpected bankruptcy hits. Okay, great, that's real helpful. Let me ask, I wanna ask about one other thing before we turn to the Keep Americans Connected and one of the coronavirus issues here. Um, so we've talked about prior to the bankruptcy and what you can do pre-bankruptcy. But post-bankruptcy, Jason, you talked about administrative claims. And many times the communication services are vital to the business being able to continue forward. We're providing broadband services, which are you know, what a lot of the commerce runs on. We're providing the communications capabilities, whether it's toll-free numbers for inbound calls or outbound calling or other kinds of communications. So in that administrative context, in that time period where the, uh, the debtor is going through the bankruptcy process, how can a communication service provider ensure that it's going to get paid for that time period? Sure. Well, there's two, two components of this, really. Number one is just the general requirement that all post-petition suppliers, service providers are supposed to be paid in the ordinary course of business. You have an administrative claim uh, priority for that. And so there is added comfort uh, about post-petition services being provided as opposed to pre-petition because you are elevated uh, and if the company is not paying you in the ordinary course, then you've got the right to take action in the bankruptcy court. But um, uh, a second protection, which is, is different than, than most other creditors, is, is there is an actual specific bankruptcy code provision uh, that requires a debtor to provide uh, utility providers with adequate assurance and protection within 30 days of the bankruptcy filing. That protection usually comes in the form of a deposit. Uh, it's usually a two weeks deposit, um, uh, but service providers, utility providers have the opportunity to go in and ask for more if that is not sufficient. Um, what you typically see in, in sophisticated bankruptcies is one of the first motions that a company will file in bankruptcy is to establish 
uh, adequate assurance pr provisions and protections for their utility suppliers uh, and procedures for disputes with respect to that. And so um, that is one of the things that can be done to provide some measure of greater protection for utility providers. If that protection isn't provided within that 30-day period, then a utility provider uh, has the opportunity and the right to alter, amend, or even terminate services. Uh, and while uh, historically uh, telecom providers weren't considered utility providers, it was more considered a luxury service, uh, obviously the world has greatly changed since the bankruptcy code was written and over the course of the last 20 years, the law has now become very clear that telecommunication providers do qualify as a utility provider under the bankruptcy code. Okay, great. Well, that's a little bit of positive news there. Okay, so let's then finish up this by talking about the Keep Americans Connected pledge. Um, and as a little bit of background for some of our listeners, um, once the coronavirus restrictions went into place, the FCC took a number of actions. And one of the first actions that Chairman Pai took was to ask communications providers voluntarily to sign a pledge that he called the Keep Americans Connected Pledge. And as relevant here, the pledge has two components to it. Um, it applies first to small business customers and residential customers. So it doesn't apply to your enterprise customers. But with respect to those customers, the small business and the, the residential customers, the pledge is for communication service providers not to terminate customers for their failure to pay service. And then secondly, to waive any late fees that arise due to the economic hardship created by the coronavirus um, uh, uh, situation. So over 600 companies signed on to that pledge, promising not to do those things. That pledge originally ran through May 15th. Uh, Chairman Pai has been now asking in the last few days for carriers to extend that pledge through June 30th. And I think it's likely that most will. So what we have then is a period of time of almost three months in which uh, providers will have pledged not to cut off customers, that is not to take one of the normal remedies they might have in, in one of these situations, and to waive any particular late fees. Um, and, and Jason or Megan, I just want to get your thoughts on kind of what the some of the implications of that might be in a bankruptcy context. Sure. Uh, two things that really come to mind to me, and, and, and you know, before even getting into to those two issues, you know, we're seeing this across a number of industries where um, uh, providers, uh, suppliers, landlords are, are bounding together to to provide benefits to these troubled companies, largely retail, uh, restaurant, service uh, industries that are being hit the hardest. Um, and it, it is hopefully going to have a, a positive effect on all of these companies, allow them to survive. But th there's two core issues that, that we look at when we see this type of thing. Number one is obviously you're, you're increasing your exposure um, as a result of this. Um, and that's kind of obviously the most obvious implication here. If you are not terminating services, you're continuing to build a receivable uh, when you get to a bankruptcy scenario and the automatic stay comes in, into play that Megan talked about earlier, you're now going to be foreclosed from seeking to get those payments, notwithstanding 
what we're calling kind of the Good Samaritan acts of, of telecommunication providers here. Uh, and so you are increasing your exposure in that situation uh, if the company ultimately goes into bankruptcy. So that, that's one of kind of the first thing that we see. The second thing that we're, we're seeing uh, that people are concerned about, and I think rightfully so, um, is less obvious, which is called preference exposure. Um, and, and for those listening to this that, that don't really know about bankruptcy, uh, there's a specific provision in the bankruptcy code, um, section 547 of the bankruptcy code, that allows a company to claw back payments that are made to creditors in the 90 days prior to bankruptcy. The intent of this provision was to promote the equitable, equitable distribution of value to creditors uh, and avoid payments that were made to specific creditors um, who were getting preferred over other creditors. Um, there are a number of defenses to a preference, um, one of them being uh, the ordinary course of business. If payments are made in that 90-day period in the ordinary course of the business relationship between supplier and debtor, um, that transfer is uh, immune from recovery. So the problem we're seeing here is with the Good Samaritans who are agreeing not to make collections on time but defer those payments to have a payment plan in process, you are now actually eliminating a defense to a preference, uh, which is problematic. Um, what we can say is that there are a number of groups that are advocating for a temporary uh, revision to the bankruptcy code um, that would allow these Good Samaritans to use as a defense COVID-19 and the fact that they were providing benefits, whether it's deferral uh, of payments, uh, payment plans or whatnot, um, in response to the COVID-19 crisis to be able to use that as a defense. Um, that's still being discussed. It certainly hasn't um, hit the, uh, the, the Senate or the House um, for any official vote, but there are a number of groups that are advocating for this. So it's going to be something for everybody to watch for uh, in the coming months. Great. Okay. No, it's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, listen, I want to I want to thank both of you for joining us today and for providing such um, very helpful and, uh, and detailed information for our communications clients and our followers of the podcast. Uh, we appreciate you both joining us today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, uh, Megan. Um, and for the listeners, thank you again for joining us on Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. Uh, we hope you will join us again on our next episode. Thank you much. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.